Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Chorus Project podcast. Now, it's been a little while since we last put an episode out, and the biggest reason for that is we've been really busy making the theatre side of the Chorus Project. Upstart Theatre's part of the project, a new interactive theatre show called Beneath the City, was performed at the Rep Theatre in Birmingham in January this year, and Pathos Munich's part of the project is in rehearsals right now for its opening in a few weeks' time. And we're also in the middle of putting our plans together to present all four of our shows across Europe this autumn. So, to bring us all back to our Arts and Democracy podcast, we've got a bit of a treat. This is going to be a live episode which we recorded at Their Festival in London back in October of last year. I interviewed Dr Dave O'Brien of the University of Edinburgh about Panic, It's an Arts Emergency, a groundbreaking academic study of social class, taste and inequality in the creative and cultural industries here in the UK. So the Chorus Project is all about the relationship between theatre and democracy. And, like democracy, theatre has some really serious problems about access. Whose voices get heard and whose get left out? And are the people who are making the decisions, the ones inside the magic circle, really representative of the rest of the community? Now, Dave and his colleagues have been looking at the answers to those questions, and to be honest, they don't look pretty. They've made some really challenging discoveries, and it was great to hear Dave talk about some of those with us. Now, before we get into it, I should say that because it's a live episode, the audio quality isn't always super high. Uh, We weren't able to get mics on the audience, so towards the end, I'm going to be cutting in and out of the live feed to sum up the questions people were asking. Do stick with us, though, because what Dave is saying is vitally important. It's a snapshot of the current state of the arts here in one small European country, and I'd love to hear what you all think about it and how it reflects the reality on the ground where you're working. So, without further ado, here we go. So, thank you so much, everyone, for coming and joining us. Uh, I'm Tom Mansfield, Artistic Director of Upstart Theatre, and I'm here with Dr David O'Brien from uh, the University of Edinburgh, who is one of the co-authors of Panic, It's an Arts Emergency, a 2018 report about social class, taste and inequalities in the creative Industries. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for coming down. No, thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Ah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so we're going to chat for about half an hour uh, and then open questions out to uh, everybody else. So if, and if any point, if anyone wants to jump in with a question, just wave, because uh, I, I can see you. We've got house lights on and everything, which is lovely. Um, we're recording this live at Bear Festival 2019, and uh, yeah, really excited to be here. So um, Dave, if I can start off, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. And uh, yeah, um, can you tell us a little bit about how, how the Panic Report came to be written? Yeah, sure thing. So um, it it appeared almost kind of um, randomly when uh, Create London, who I guess are a kind of artistic commissioning agency uh, that are housed in the Barbican, um, were in touch with Goldsmiths, where I was I was working in 2015, and they sort of asked, "Oh, we'd like to do this thing about inequality in the arts. We think social mobility has kind of collapsed into arts jobs. We're really keen to do a, a sort of." Um, artistic commission and the research project and almost exactly the same time myself and uh, three of my colleagues were working on a paper looking at uh, patterns of 
both class, race, and gender in creative industries jobs. And that conversation about, you know, what kind of research project could we do? Um, how would you, you know, sort of build some artistic commissions was where it started. So they had, I guess it was kind of creating a Barbican had um, a set of events. There was an artistic commission. There was a big kind of poster campaign around London uh, based on some of uh, the findings that we got from some survey data and also some, some academic research. And at the same time, uh, a few of us had started a conversation with Arts Emergency, who some of you might know are a charity uh, interested in trying to kind of challenge inequalities in the arts. Um, and they sort of describe themselves as a social justice, not a social mobility organisation. And that led to this uh, Arts and Humanities Research Council bid, which was, was awarded, which is very good, and we're very grateful to AHRC uh, for supporting that. Um, which gave us two years of both kind of research, uh, fieldwork interviews, uh, planning uh, events and, and artistic commissions with Create Barbican and Arts Emergency. Great. And so how did you go about the research process for the report? Yeah, so uh, I think we're, we're very well served around kind of creative occupations, creative industries, um, by lots of sector-specific bits of work. So um, people working on the music industry and music industry organisations, um, writers' organisations. I think uh, it was either ALCS or the Writers Guild published some stuff about writers' earnings earlier this year. Right. Um, there's lots of stuff that, um, say, um, is it independent theatres? Trust. I can't remember what they're called, but you um, know, would it be the ITC. The yeah, ITC Council. Yeah, yeah. Um, they did stuff on like parenting and on skills as well. Mm. Um, so we we figured actually, you know, we, we don't need to do much on kind of individual um, subsectors or, or art forms. But what hasn't been done is looking at kind of uh, administrative or government data sets. So things like the Office for National Statistics Labour Force Survey, the ONS's Longitudinal Survey, which is um, the census kind of linked together, uh, or a sample of the census linked together since 1971, uh, things like British Social Attitudes survey data, mm -hmm. and at the same time, um, you don't tend to get a lot of kind of cross-comparative work, so um, we were interested in trying to do the kind of things that art forms were doing for themselves, uh, but comparatively, and linking it to these um, administrative, these kind of bigger picture data sets. Right. So uh, you spent from 2015 to 2018 pulling the, the research together. Yeah, well, I mean, like, obviously, I, I was, like, teaching and, and sure. doing, doing other <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, Daniel Lorison and Sam Friedman, who are the co-authors of this book called The Class Ceiling, Why mm -hmm. It Pays to be Privileged, um, they were involved, but they uh, ended up doing work that was more on kind of traditional professions like... Uh, accountancy and law and, and this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. uh, Andrew Miles, who's at the University of Manchester, was doing stuff around um, uh, kind of participation in culture. Uh, but myself and Mark Taylor uh, and Orion Brook, uh, who, who came on board uh, in 2016, I think. And then uh, our colleague Siobhan McAndrew um, at, at Bristol. Um, we were, were sort of fairly consistently working on different bits of, of the project. The, I think there's a very, um, in some ways we're in a, a really good moment for research mm -hmm. because there's lots of interest in this 
area, but it shows you how bad the inequalities are, that now academics with different sets of interests, like Siobhan's very interested in social attitudes, um, Orion's a, basically a geographer um, and, and a kind of quantitative analyst, uh, Mark looks at patterns um, of cultural consumption. The fact that three very different researchers would be keen to look at um, culture and creative industries kind of tells you something about there are big problems here. Right, and that brings us on to, I think, the, the findings in the report, which um, I, I don't know how many people here have read it. It makes for some quite challenging and difficult reading at times. Um, but you organise it into, uh, you've got four parts to your report. And the first one uh, is about belief in meritocracy. So we were interested in, um, I suppose, two things. One is what the kind of general attitudes are in, in the sector. Uh, which we talk about later in the report, but also in whether people think there's a problem or not. We know that, you know, almost kind of uh, every day, certainly every week um, in um, the media, there's a discussion of some inequality issue in a particular art form or, or a particular um, area of, of cultural production. And we, we were kind of interested in whether cultural workers thought this was an issue. And what, one of the things you find when you look at um, kind of general social surveys, so in, in, in the US there's a, a long tradition of, of asking people whether they think society is, is kind of fair or not, yeah. is that people tend to be quite bad at like understanding um, their sort of position in society yeah. and patterns of inequality in society as well. So as part of some work um, that, that we, we were lucky enough to, to get The Guardian to to, to host a web survey for us as part of some work we were doing uh, with about two and a half thousand uh, creative workers who responded to the survey. We asked them basically like, what do you think drives success in your particular cultural occupation? Is it what we might think of as kind of like meritocracy? So is it if you're talented, hardworking, um, you'll make it? Or is it what we as social scientists refer to as social reproduction? So actually, is it like your class, your gender, your ethnicity, your uh, family wealth that underpins success? And we found, basically, one of the problems with this is that um, you're about to hear me here over and over again, we found what we expected to find. Hmm. Uh, but we found what we expected to find, which was that... Um, all of our 2,500 respondents skewed towards some version of meritocracy. And this is completely logical. There would be no point at all working in the arts if you thought that only, you know, kind of uh, a particular ethnicity, uh, a particular gender, a particular social class would make it. Um, maybe if you were, were that gender, race, or, or class, you might say, yeah, I, I've made it because I've got these characteristics. But again, it's very rare you'll find anyone who'll say that without some qualifications right. and without maybe a sense of kind of knowing irony as well. And what we found were that um, the respondents tended to skew towards some version of being hardworking and talented explains success, which again is logical. But the people we, we sort of picked out and the people we were, we were worried about were 
the people who are most likely to be committed to meritocracy, so are most likely to tell us that hard work and talent explain success, were the people who were best paid, hmm. which kind of set off a few alarm bells for us because it suggested that um, the people who tend to be at the top of whether it's kind of artistic commissioning or uh, maybe success as actors or musicians are the ones who were least likely to like recognize or observe kind of structural problems in their industries. Right. And so people who are less well paid and sort of not at the top of what I'm going to laughingly refer to as like the ladder of, of the arts, how does the, they're less committed to the idea that theatre, uh, the arts in general, sorry, it's not a theatre specific study, but the, the cultural sector is a less meritocratic, from well, that point of view, less meritocratic like, setup. They had more of a mix, so they were likely to tell us some version of, you've got to be hardworking and talented, but also your race, your class, your gender right. matter for being successful, uh -huh. which, I mean, those people are correct. Um, you know, it, it is important that we don't just say that, like, only um, posh white men make it. Um, you know, many posh white men who make it are clearly incredibly hardworking and talented. Mm. But at the same time, there is that kind of um, clear sense that things aren't fair. So when we put this in the context of uh, the second part of, of the report, which looks at um, how patterns work in the labour market, we can see that particular occupations um, are, are dominated by uh, specific social groups. So film tends to be uh, very male. Um, publishing, writing is very, very middle class. Um, the museum sector, galleries, etc., very, very white. Uh, there's a, a real kind of absence um, of ethnic minorities in, in that labour force. Mm. And again, you, you know, we, we can see the way that it's logical to think you've got to be talented and hardworking to make it. It's logical to observe, you know, structural barriers. But there is this kind of sense that if that's the way that you know the sector works, then maybe we won't need to change, or maybe nothing will change. Right. And in terms of that change, uh, one of the things that you go on to explore in the second part of the report is how uh, people from working class backgrounds are and have been historically excluded from senior positions in the creative sector. How has that changed over time? So it, that is a really difficult question. Mm. Um, we, we were very motivated um, by trying to think through whether, I suppose, people's perceptions uh, of class and the arts, whether it's film, theatre, uh, visual arts, um, were, were correct. So if you look at um, people who are, say, successful mm -hmm. actors in, the, in their 50s or in their 60s, they will talk about a particular golden age. I mean, successful actors who are now in their like 70s and 80s will talk about the 60s and the early 70s as being right. this kind of you know, golden age of the sort of insurrectionary working class coming into film and, and television and, and into theatre as well. Actors in their sort of you know, late 40s, early 50s will talk about the early 1980s as being this you know, kind of crucial and important time, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for, I suppose, you know, forms of um, class politics and, and resistance to uh, political changes that were happening in the early 1980s. And I mean, like, at no point were we like, those people are lying and we have to prove it. But 
we were interested in the way that um, academic social science that studies social mobility suggests that um, there's been a remarkable amount of stability uh, in terms of working class access to professions. Okay. Often we don't think about the arts as like professions in the way that law and, and medicine are, mm. but actually you know, it's important to see that they are uh, different kinds of jobs compared with, say, being a cleaner, a bus driver, being a manual uh, laborer, th this kind of stuff. Mm. So we looked at this um, collection of, uh, it's a sample of the census that's linked together, uh, the Office of National Statistics Longitudinal Study. And what we found was that um, people entering in the, the labor market in the early 1980s, um, there was this kind of difference uh, between the chances of someone who was from a middle-class background making it as compared to someone from a working-class background. And those, uh, I suppose, odds were about four to one. So you were four times more likely uh, to make it uh, if you're from a middle-class background. When we look in um, 2011, we see the same odds, about four to one. Okay. And there are lots of different complex explanations for this, which is to do with the way that um, essentially kind of working class manual labor jobs, um, the kinds of uh, industrial production, mining, these kind of occupations have shrunk and office work, you know, kind of uh, professional occupations have expanded. Um, and, you know, we need to be attentive to the way that um, explanations for um, social change are often nothing to do with, you know, the kind of individual occupations we're interested in. Right. But that story of stability really struck with us because we were keen to kind of say, look, we shouldn't be talking about a decline or collapse of social mobility. Um, and we shouldn't really be thinking about, you know, what's gone wrong in the last 10 years or 20 years that's excluded working class people or made their chances of making it uh, less when compared to their middle-class uh, colleagues. Actually, what we should be doing is thinking about these occupations have always been difficult to get into for those from working-class occupations. And what is it about these jobs? What is it about these art forms? What is it, is it about these industries that has meant that consistently um, working-class uh, origin people making it have been outliers, have been unusual, uh, which prompts, I guess, a kind of a different set of um, both, you know, kind of stories yeah. and also policy prescriptions as well. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I think a lot of my experience, and I don't know if that's true of other people here, but quite, so I'm in my late 30s and I spend quite a lot of time talking to an older generation of directors, particularly, and, and theatre makers. And yeah, I, I do sometimes get the sense that everything was great in about 1985. <laughs> uh, when, yeah, you know, there was mass unemployment, but there was the Arts Council and all this kind of stuff. And that yeah. sort of tracks on... Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, it's important to make sure we don't lose those experiences and those stories because they actually tell us um, important things about, say, um, the social state in the early 1980s, mm. uh, the ability to access things like housing benefits, unemployment benefits. We now have a catastrophic housing crisis in London and we have an unbelievably punitive and awful benefit system. Right, yeah. And, you know, the idea that we'd say, you know, somehow like, oh, we should just forget about that. I mean, that, that's, that's not the lesson here. Hmm. But at the same time, the stories of access to housing, um, stories of, you know, being able to kind of sign on and also do some experimental theatre work 
at the same time. They tell us that you know, these um, entry points into the theatre world, the film and television world, the visual arts world, have always been precarious, mm. they've always been low paid, they've always been really kind of heavily dependent on being in, in Britain at least, in a particular place, London, having particular kinds of networks. And you know, the lessons there are to do with, well actually shouldn't we be thinking about why are these things so low paid, rather than saying, if we just brought back uh, access to uh, cheaper housing and benefits, then the problems of the arts would be solved, because they wouldn't. Sure. Yeah. Can I just ask you a terminology question? Yeah, sure. You talked a couple of times just there about making it. Yeah. What does making it mean that's in this a context? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, and th there's a couple of things going on. Um, the first thing is, is basically making it as being identified in either a census or a labor force survey as being working in a culture and creative job. Okay. And from the kind of, uh, I suppose, social scientific uh, work that myself and my colleagues do, we mean making it by just having one of these jobs. Right. Um, these jobs are, you know, an important part of the British economy, but they're, you know, not a huge mm -hmm. part compared to, say, working in the health service or working in education. Sure. Um, in the early 1980s, you know, working in uh, various bits of industry, dwarfed working in the arts. So there's that kind of level. Then also we're, we're interested in career trajectories. So making it in terms of not just kind of getting like in, mm. but also getting on as well. Sure. And the ability to kind of have a sustained career and the ability to end up doing relatively senior positions okay. um, is important as well. Because to an extent, um, in the current policy landscape, we see a lot of a kind of interest and a lot of intervention on, I guess, what the social scientists mean by making it, which is how can we get people into uh, being artists, being actors, being you know uh, directors, uh, being runners on film sets, being uh, writers for television. There's less interest in, well, hang on, why is it that at senior levels we have a very particular type of person right. in the middle and top of the BBC, in London's key theatre institutions, in our national museums, this kind of thing. Right. So that sort of top level, the, the people who it feels like from, from where I sit, the people who kind of run the world. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I get you. Um, the th and this kind of, I think, will we'll link on, uh, but the third part of the Panic Report discussed the problem of unpaid labour yep. within the arts. Can you tell us a little bit about Yeah, that? like, so, everybody in this room, like, yeah, you know, um, in, insert laughter, like, everybody experiences unpaid labour, and I'm glad, you know, there's been nodding and laughter, because that actually tells us something about the problem. So, it, it's kind of trite to say that uh, whether it's uh, formal forms of unpaid labour, like unpaid internships, which are highly problematic, are illegal in some ways, or uh, other kinds of unpaid labor, which are like working, you know, more hours or kind of helping out in a volunteer way, you know, the, these kind of things. Unpaid labor is part of uh, how arts and uh, also, you know, other creative industries operate. We were obviously keen to, to remind people about that, but we were keen to, to also unpack that a little. And we, we make two points really. Um, that have a particular political consequence. One is that um, the experiences of unpaid labor when we were doing interviews with a couple of hundred creative workers were differentiated by age, 
and slightly by career stage. So our older workers or creative workers who were more established would give us a story of unpaid labor as being a kind of choice, um, as having a kind of an autonomy. Some of this, again, is to do with, say, how the benefit system was working in the 1980s. Uh, but also it was, uh, as they were later in their careers, they had, um, you know, the kind of, they were well established enough to be able to say, well, I'd do that for free, but I'd never do something else for free. You know, mm. I would kind of help out with a reading, but of course I'd never take a free commission, you know, you know, these kind of things. And there was a, you know, a certain hostility to the idea that your labor would not be paid. This is in contrast to younger workers uh, or workers that were less uh, well-established earlier in their, in their careers. Our younger workers were basically like, you have to work for free, that's how the creative industries function, full stop. But when we started to look at how that was patterned, we saw a clear distinction uh, really based on social class. And this is social class um, conceived of in terms of people's kind of access to resources. So those people who had lots of kind of uh, networks, who had family um, or, you know, kind of private wealth, um, they were able to see unpaid labor uh, not as voluntary. They knew they had to work unpaid, but actually it's something that was worth an investment that would pay off. So their stories were, you know, stories of um, taking some experimental work up to Edinburgh and losing a lot of money, mm. or they were doing um, a play or, or an exhibition uh, totally unpaid around London's visual art scene or its theatre scene uh, because it gave them a network which then paid off in a subsequent commission, this kind of thing. Um, and there are also the day-to-day -day things of like, you know, uh, being able to ask family for money so they didn't have to take a job in, you know, terms of like turning up ready for an audition versus someone who was working, um, say, you know, a long shift and didn't have time to, to practice or, or something like that. Their working class counterparts, uh, people without social and, and economic uh, resources or, or capitals, as some social scientists uh, call money and, uh, and friends, um, they would tell us stories basically of unpaid work going nowhere, you know, crap student films, uh, promises of headshots that never arrived, and a kind of sense of like sort of desperation, a sense that, you know, that I'd just be willing to do anything, it doesn't matter if I get paid or not, you know, I, I just kind of just, just want to get a lucky break. And when you, you sort of compare these stories, both our older workers and their kind of uh, autonomy or, or, or voluntarism um, and the class distinctions with our younger workers. You see a story of basically a fake kind of social solidarity around unpaid work. If it's the case that everybody is like, you just have to work for free if you want to make it in the arts, that means that it's really hard to say, well, actually, some people are working for free in a very different way that right. pays off in a very different way. And it's very hard to build kind of forms of resistance if... Uh, your more affluent, your more well-connected colleagues are, you know, telling you these kind of similar stories of social struggle, which actually are very, very different to your own. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me think a little bit about the commissioning model we run here, but I think maybe that's something we could come back to mm. in a few minutes, if that's all right, because I did want to structure this conversation around the panic report. Cool. I yeah. don't want to go too far off topic. Um, so the fourth part uh, that the three of you write about in the report is about the social attitudes in the arts workforce. And um, it feels like there's a tension between the attitudes and values that people in the workforce seem to, seem to hold and the structure of 
the sector as a, as a whole. Yeah, so I mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about meritocracy. So um, working with Siobhan McAndrew from, from Bristol, uh, Mark, Orion, and I looked at how uh, British social attitudes data uh, gives you a sense of what different occupations, uh, kind of uh, politics and values are. And what you see is that arts occupations, creative workers tend to be the most liberal, the most left-wing, uh, the most kind of pro uh, sort of uh, welfare interventions of, of any set of occupations. Um, and I mean, this is terrible radio, but the kind of gradient runs from sort of plumbers, miners, manual workers who tend to have more what we might think of as like right-wing views through uh, the education and health sector to the arts. And that's great because basically they're my views and it's awesome that you know the people producing culture share my politics. That's really good for me. Hmm. It's sort of less good in a couple of ways. One is um, this question about how the structural problems in the workforce are gonna be recognized when seemingly the kind of, um, I suppose prevailing story from the attitudes of creative workers is that we're the good guys. You know, we're the most progressive, we're the most committed to social change. And that sort of worries us a bit in terms of recognizing problems. There's also, I guess, another question, and we supplement this by looking at the taste patterns of creative workers uh, using the um, government, or at least England's uh, taking part uh, data. We see that our kind of big outliers in terms of tastes are creative workers. Creative workers are, you know, the, the people who are likely to go to the theatre, they're likely to turn up to exhibitions. Um, even kind of well-educated professionals, like people who are like architects, lawyers, etc., they look sort of like the rest of the population in terms of their taste patterns, but our creative workers are like the most committed to turning up to the arts, which again is, is totally logical. But it made us wonder whether there's a bit of a distance in terms of representation. Mm -hmm. And I, I try and be really careful about this because at no point do you want to ever side with hateful kind of right-wing, you know, metropolitan elite, uh, you know, sort of this sort of nonsense discourse. But I, I do think there is an issue about um, the role that our creative workforce kind of plays in representing individuals, communities, and the nation, when in some ways, um, they are very, very distant or different um, from um, many individuals in Britain, many communities in Britain, and in some ways, you know, kind of our, our sort of national sense uh, of ourselves as well. And it's tricky this because, you know, on the one hand, maybe it's brilliant that the most uh, progressive uh, political attitudes are found in the people who are responsible for making culture. But it also makes you sort of wonder, well, why is it that we have, you know, potentially, um, if we think about something like immigration, such reactionary views on television in parts of media, that this kind of thing. So the, the these bigger, like, I guess, you know, political economy of culture questions come from that as well. Yeah. I'm just trying to write a note on my phone. And All right, sorry. It, uh, which is, um, does that... I, I don't know if your data goes into this, but do you have a sense of how attitudes in senior leadership roles in the culture sector might be... Are, are those? Do you have any information on whether those, the attitudes of those people in terms of politics is different to 
the attitudes of people working at a more grassroots or early career? Yeah, so there's two answers to that. Like, we, we don't put this in the, in the report because it's kind of technical, but uh, in the paper that underpins the social attitudes work, um, we did actually divide kind of managerial and non-managerial arts occupations, and you see similar patterns, basically. Uh, we also looked at British election study data to, to try and double-check if we were right. But um, Mark, Orion, and I have also uh, like just published a paper in European Journal of Cultural Studies where we looked at a subsample of our interviewees uh, who were senior men um, making decisions. So uh, obviously it, it's all anonymous and um, uh, non-attributable, um, but they were basically kind of men running um, either major regional or major London-based arts organisations across film, um, theatre, museums, visual arts. And it was interesting because what we sort of expected to find were like clueless, unreconstructed, like, you know, the kind of men that I guess um, my Twitter feed is constantly kind of moaning about in the arts. Uh, you know, what we expected were like, you know, kind of mansplaining for each eating interview. Mm. And actually what we found were that um, our senior men shared the same kind of progressive uh, politics and the same kind of progressive, I suppose, like project for arts and culture as we found in the kind of broader social patterns. The problem was that as we kind of drilled down into the interviews, we saw a distance between that sense of, you know, progressive commitment and indeed, you know, a, a, a slightly unusual recognition uh, of, of what some of the, the issues facing the arts uh, workforce and audience are and their stories about their hiring practices and also their own self-perceptions as well. So this uh, kind of commitment to uh, progressive uh, politics and political change didn't seem to be matched by a kind of self-awareness. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the laugh of recognition coming from the audience right there. Um, There's a real, like, uh, this is yeah, like off, off topic, but so uh, the three of us have presented this paper in, in various different ways. Um, the gender split in responses is fascinating. All of the women consistently in the audiences are like, oh, God, I know these men. Yeah. And there's always one or two men who are like, no, but you don't mean all men, do you? And it's like, come on. <laughs> Yeah. And to the extent that, like, you'd think we planted these men as, like, illustrations of the problem. But anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I hear that. Um, I, you closed the report with four questions, um, which I copy and pasted really quickly and awkwardly. Yeah, and, and I wrote this, like, well, three of us wrote this, like, a long time ago, so I can't actually remember what those four questions are. Shall so. I read them out? Yeah, please do. Okay, and then, uh, so, to what extent are cultural and creative occupations accessible and, quote, unquote, meritocratic if the demographics of its workers, their social origins, and their networks are relatively homogeneous? Which is a word I never know how to say. Did I say that right? <laughs> it sounds right, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, that. Uh, question two was, to what extent is the cultural and creative sector delivering on representing individuals, communities, and the nation if research suggests its tastes, values, and attitudes are also relatively coherent? Uh, how will a sector with such different cultural engagement speak for the rest of a society for whom non-engagement is the norm? And looking at our cultural and creative industries as a whole, 
who is missing from the picture. Um, since publication of the report, obviously you've been continuing to, to work and think about all of these questions. Hearing those back now, do you have, uh, are you able to give us a sense of like, what work is being done to, not to answer those questions, because they're all sort of unanswerable, aren't they? But like, to move the dial, dials in the right direction. Yeah, like, there's maybe a couple of things uh, to say, really. The, the first thing is, um, it's really important to, to think about what is possible and what maybe individual uh, kind of artists, arts organizations should sort of say, actually, that's not on us. And many of the problems that um, we talk about in the report uh, are the direct responsibility of like hiring, commissioning, etc. But actually, many of them are not really to do with the arts. They're to do with the fact that Britain is a hugely unequal society, and um, it's likely that particular kinds of inequality um, are going to be further entrenched by policy decisions. Um, so I, I mentioned this a couple of times. You know. The fact that London has a catastrophic housing crisis is not the responsibility of either the British Museum or the National Theatre, or indeed the, you know, the DARE Festival. Mm. Like, but that, almost more than anything else, is one of the key drivers uh, for inequality um, in you know, basic things like um, being able to afford to live near where the kind of key centres of creative production are, through to access to studio space and the you know increasing kind of uh, drive to use um, formally kind of studio spaces for luxury flats and, and this kind of stuff. And it's you know it's it's really difficult. So that's the first thing. The second thing. Uh, so that's like pessimism one. Uh, pessimism two um, is probably distilled quite usefully in the title of a book that myself, Mark, and Orion are publishing in kind of April, May next year, which is just called Culture is Bad for You. Um, <laughs> and um, the book basically looks in much more detail at the issues that came up in the panic report and going through particularly fieldwork uh, data, we, we got much kind of more depressed because... Um, it's possible to identify um, the dynamics underpinning the patterns that we found in the report. So we, we, we can, like, we've, we've got some really good data on uh, people's experiences of culture uh, in childhood and the relationship between exposure to culture and likelihood of working in creative occupations later in life. And it, it's just, it's just really grim, you, you know, that uh, all of our creative workers were kind of foregrounding their cultural experiences, and it's clear that, you know, access to culture as children is heavily related to social class patterns, which means that, you know, the kind of the class uh, divide in our creative workers is likely to continue. Um, we've got really detailed data about women leaving the labour force because they're starting families and their experiences of the relentless sexism. Um, that comes from theater, from visual arts, from the film industry. Similarly, uh, the experiences of socially mobile ethnic minority workers, um, of supposedly progressive institutions that hire them, you know, to be the diversity hire, and then are surprised when they leave after two years. You know, they gain important networks, they're able to set themselves up as, as freelancers, but their experiences are, are pretty horrible, actually, of 
institutions that you know you wouldn't say are institutionally racist because that uh, carries a, a lot of kind of uh, baggage with it, but are you know hostile environments for those who are not um, white, affluent origin in some cases men. So yeah, it, it's pretty depressing. That said, though, um, one of the kind of uh, flip sides to lots of social scientists kind of plowing in to say this is all terrible and we, we can show you you know how and why it's terrible is people like campaigning you know doing uh, stuff that they're you know it is kind of like changing uh, at least individual lives so like two examples that, that i've you know um been working with and have mentioned were it, it was great to work with create create have lots of problems, they've heard me say, they've got lots of problems repeatedly to them and, and in public, but they've changed how they do commissioning and they're much more attentive to like, I suppose the kind of the commissioning process. And one of the projects they're trying to do now is around housing uh, and access to housing. Um, arts Emergency, you know, it, it are just brilliant and, and, and lovely. And, you know, theirs is a story of, changing individual lives mm. which you know may or may not have like this massive structural change but they are doing something and they are making uh, individuals lives um, better now that sounds optimistic but obviously like you know i'm sort of a sociologist so uh, like that i would like to give a little bit more pessimism in the sense that what worries me is is always the kind of uh, the sense that we, we've done something, so we've solved the problem. Mm. And going back to where I started with the first kind of the first case for pessimism, if it is the case that we've got an unequal society um, that has you know these structural inequalities that are reflected in our cultural production and consumption systems, then we should kind of think that actually no one thing will solve these problems. And we always have to be doing things to, to deal with them, particularly in terms of how dynamic inequalities are. So um, I've been doing some, some work in Parliament, and in one of the hearings, there was an interesting discussion uh, of unconscious bias training, which uh, one of the MPs was like, unconscious bias training, companies should do that. And one of our witnesses, Louise Ashley, who's up at... Um, Royal Holloway was like, well, actually, the problem is, is that companies say we're going to do unconscious bias training for hiring and promotion decisions, and then organisations say, but we've done that, so we've solved the problem. And actually, that doesn't solve the problem. It's something that you know needs to be done, but loads more needs to be done as well. Right. Dave, thank you so much. No, it's been really, really fascinating. Um, I said we were going to talk about this model that we run here very briefly, uh, just because I think it keys into some of what you were saying about the, the problem of unpaid and low-paid labour in, in the arts. We, before we came in to the room today, we were talking about, the, as you just said, the challenge of kind of continuing to, to try to fight against the, the unsolvable problems. And what we do with there, the whole, the whole, thing costs about £22,000 to run, uh, most of which comes from the Arts Council. And of that, uh, from that, we commission 12 groups of artists for a relatively small C commission of £500 each. And that, when we started uh, four years ago, that money was often used to leverage greater Arts Council income. So people would have a, a production budget of 
eight grand, say, for whatever they're going to do, and they'd use 500 quid from us and a bunch of in-kind support to, uh, to make it financially viable for them to put the work in. As far as I know, and I know we've got a few of our artists in the room, but as far as I know, no one this year has had a successful Arts Council project grant. If you're the Arts Council and you're listening, thank you very much for funding their festival. <laughs> um, but it's, it's striking to me that, because what we're therefore finding is that what we're asking our artists to do is effectively more or less the same amount of work for significantly less money. And while at the same time we're, um, we've been very clear this year about uh, earmarking commissions for people from uh, historically disadvantaged groups, whether that's working class people, uh, people from uh, black, Asian or minority ethnic backgrounds, um, people from LGBTQ backgrounds. But we're still finding ourselves kind of trapped in a, a very challenging economic vicious cycle. What's your, from the research that you've done, what's your experience of kind of smaller scale organisations and how are they successfully or otherwise dealing with some of the issues that you guys have outlined? It, it, it's a really difficult balance um, because on, on a really, you know, kind of like macro view, what you've got is uh, particularly from younger people is like a chronic oversupply of people entering mm. um, artistic and cultural labour markets, which means that there's, you know, a, a kind of like an, an arms race. That, that's not an appropriate metaphor, but there will always be someone who's like, well, you know, I'll do it for free. I'll do it for nothing. And it's difficult because smaller organisations, um, the, the temptation is, well, you know, well, we've got a small amount of money and, you know, that might be enough to, to leverage versus a, we've got a smaller amount of money uh, amount of money and someone might be able to kind of work for free in a you know very sustained way mm. and you see this perfectly encapsulated in the fringe up at edinburgh where on the one hand what you've got is a story of lots and lots of tiny you know sometimes sole trader organizations that um constitute one of the great kind of cultural markets for want of a better word but and you know like and it's it's a crucial part of the cultural ecosystem in, in britain but when you start to kind of like ask questions about it you find the several blogs, stories, you know, the, um, the discussions that happened up there this year and, and have gone on for a long time, which were to do with, but hang on, you know, who is benefiting from this? Mm. And, and, and the thing is that there's no one right way of, of doing this. And, you know, you're confronted constantly with challenges of, but let's say we gave, you know, not 12, but six, a thousand pounds. And, you know, would that be better or, or worse? I guess that, you know, the, the thing to say is awareness is really key of this. And, you know, being sort of conscious about the trade-offs is important. Um, I'm working with the Jerwoods, um, various artistic uh, development projects they've got. And we've been thinking about um, criteria of who gets in and who doesn't mm. as really crucial here. Um, because you know the, the more you're kind of um, understanding the problems and tailoring things to the problems, the, the better really. And it's about you know being attentive. But again, these are massive social structural problems, and you know you as a small organisation cannot solve them. 
you can make a difference. You can definitely do things that are bad, you know, <laughs> and you know will will not help. Sure. Uh, but equally, like uh, I think there is a, a risk that everybody's like, oh, it, it's all terrible, mm. and uh, there's nothing we can do. And the lesson from that actually this comes back to something we found a couple of times with our, our senior men actually was the really bad take in all of this is to say there's nothing I can do about how many people are willing to kind of volunteer, work for free, have got, you know, master's degrees and PhDs. That means I should hire the person who went to Oxford and got a PhD because they're the best person. Like that, that is like literally the opposite of the lesson you should take. Rather, it's the question of, you know, what kind of things would benefit, what stages of career, being, again, you know, attentive to how uh, these problems work rather than being attentive to how these problems work and saying there's nothing we can do. There's always something, even if you're pulling halfway up the mountain and all, yeah, all of that. I, I think, yeah, I feel quite strongly that what we're trying to do is hopefully not make things worse and make things a little bit better uh, as we go along. I'm aware that we talked for a little bit longer than we said we were going to, but we've probably got about five minutes if anyone has any further questions for Dave. Hi. So we kind of lose the audio here, but basically someone asks this question. Do you put the failures you've identified in the arts sector down to failures of strategy or incompetent leadership? <laughs> uh, like a, a bit of both. Um, th there are definitely... Um, So as not to date the podcast, nor to say anything like, you know, moderately slanderous or, or whatever. Like, there are constant examples from London's cultural organisations of genuinely incompetent leadership decisions, uh, which you can see coming, you're unsurprised when they happened, and, you know, it, it's, it's, like, tedious how predictable the fallout is as well. Um, so, you know, that, that is, a, is a problem. And... This is not just kind of within artistic organisations, but you can see this at a policy level as well. Um, and, you know, we have a new Secretary of State for Culture. Um, it's not entirely clear what her kind of cultural policy is, is going to be, whether she's there for a long time or, or whatever. Um, but there are certainly, you know, things she's talked about in terms of... Um, arts education, in terms of equalities, where you think mm, this, this probably isn't going to be useful to address the problems. At the same time, though, um, there are, are definitely kind of, I suppose, broader strategic problems that are just, just really difficult for arts organisations to solve. It, it, it's a bit like every year there's a, a really boring debate about um, who gets into Oxford and Cambridge. And it's boring because the action should be centred on what happens to kids before they're five years old. And I feel sorry for admissions tutors who are wheeled out every year to say, but, you know, like, many of these inequalities are nothing to do with us, which they're not. Equally, like, you know, they make decisions that are appalling. So it's, it's those two things, you know, like, there are definitely um, things that arts organisations... I suppose struggle with but yeah there are so many examples of incompetent leadership 
And again, we lose the audience audio here, but basically the next question is uh, kind of about if there is an oversupply in the workforce for the arts in the UK, are there basically too many people studying drama at university or going through professional vocational drama schools and should therefore fewer people be given access to those training opportunities, especially given that they have to pay to go through them? So, yeah, like, I, so that, I, I think, like, that's one conclusion you can take, but, but actually, one, one of the, I'm occasionally sympathetic to the government, and one of my occasional bits of sympathy is the idea that these are potentially growing parts of the economy, um, and, yeah, you know, it, it's true that there are really obvious oversupplies um, in, in the labour market. At the same time, you know, these are industries that we would seek to grow. You know, they're, in theory, like, better than making guns or coal mining. And so, like, so, you know, like, I, I think the kind of, like, oh, there are too many arts graduates, we should, like, stop people doing the arts, I think is, is a mistake. The, the, the other side to that, uh, and, and, you know, like growing these industries where, you know, we can definitely uh, export forms of culture, you know, there are definitely, you know, sustainable jobs here that are well paid because it's clear that some people are getting well paid uh, out of them. And there's a relationship between innovation uh, in creative industry sectors and the wider economy as well. You know, so, I mean, that's like a full business story. And I know people in the arts hate it when like academics talk about like business and stuff but you know it, it, it's something to be considered when we talk about labour market oversupplies the, the, the other thing I'd say to what you brought up is this question of like money is crucial but also like so are networks and so are particular kinds of exclusions that like social scientists would talk about cultural capital um, you know in terms of kind of uh, having the right cues knowing what to wear like all of us here I, like you know you're very well dressed sir uh, you're wearing a tie and a suit I, I, I think but everybody else is kind of casual which is like how the arts world sort of looks um, and these kinds of you know uh, hard to sort of quantify um, hard to find out behavioural cues are really, really crucial and are ways that actually lots of people find exclusive both in terms of audience and in terms of access to work as well. So money really matters, but irrespective of what happens politically, we're likely to see more money coming into the arts uh, because DCMS's budget is going to go up uh, under the Tories, a lot of it's going to be absorbed by the Commonwealth Games, but, you know, it's likely that Arts Council England are going to have more money to spend in England. And certainly, you know, Labour's manifesto uh, has, has committed to more arts spending as well. As a thought experiment um, from what the social science tells us is, that money will mean that basically the workforce, you know, there are maybe a few more working class origin people, maybe... Uh, middle-class ethnic minority uh, representation expands, the audience will stay largely the same in terms of the relationship between class education and cultural consumption. So it's not just money. And if you want a concrete illustration, uh, free museums is quite a nice example. Thank you. We've got time for one more question, mainly because I know it's your show in here next. So if we run over, we're okay. This was a question from one of our Dare Festival artists asking if Dave had any advice for someone starting an arts career. 
I mean, look, like, if I can answer it honestly, like, I don't, I'm an academic. Like, I, you know, I can give you advice about how to pursue careers in academia, because that's, like, what I know about. But in terms of, like, um, I can tell you what the structural problems you'll encounter are. But, like, in terms of, like, who you should speak to and stuff, I, I, I don't actually know. So I'd be slightly cautious about anything I'd say as advice. Um, and at this point, we had a really interesting question from one of our audience about wills and legacies, basically asking if it would be possible for the Arts Council to go to wealthy patrons or donors and see if they'd be willing to leave money to the arts in their wills or for the arts to get more money from things like the National Health Service. Well, Arts Council England um, did try to develop uh, philanthropy and kind of philanthropic giving uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and the basic problem is is that wealthy donors tend not to be interested in kind of developmental work. It, it's a cliche, but they tend to be interested in like new wings of buildings. Um, and the, the, the building problem um, is, is actually, you know, there's a danger of kind of having more buildings than artists in, in the end. In terms of the relationship with health funding, the current governments are very interested in social prescribing and they're very interested in the relationship between arts participation and better uh, mental and physical health outcomes. So actually there is arts money from the NHS going in, um, which in some ways is great, but in other ways I think we should be cautious because it's not entirely clear that the government has done the work they need to do about who is delivering and what kind of toll it takes to deliver um, arts programs for, for health. Uh, the research on impact is very well advanced. The research on part, like, you know, deliverers for a better term is, is not as well advanced. Unfortunately, I think that we're gonna have to leave it there. Dave, thank you so much. Um, thank you, thanks for inviting where me. Where can we find you on social media if we'd like to find out more? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I tweet at Dr. Dave O'Brien. And um, like the panic report is, uh, I think there's a link on the Edinburgh homepage. Uh, certainly on the Edinburgh homepage, you can find like all of the papers I've, I've been referencing and almost all of them are open access as well. So there's like no excuse for not reading 8,000 word academic papers. <laughs> oh, we'll link to it all on our website and in our show notes. That's great. As well. Thanks uh, very much. Dr. David Ryan, thank you so much. Cheers. So that's it for this episode. Uh, the book Dave talks about in the episode, Culture is Bad for You, Inequality and the Cultural and Creative Industries by Orion Brick, Dave O'Brien and Mark Taylor is going to be published this July by the University of Manchester Press. And we've linked to it and to the panic report on our show notes and on the Upstart Theatre website. Thanks for listening and see you soon. <laughs>